How many of you have ever started something, say a new job or a business or a degree program or even a family, and realized not long after that it wasn't what you thought it would be? Maybe you had a certain set of expectations about how things were going to go and then they were totally undercut. If it was a job, maybe you were sold on one image for the organization and then found out it was totally different. Instead of being a chill place to work with a supportive boss, you found the whole place, top to bottom, was laden with anxiety. If, if it was a family, maybe you thought you had your eyes open about late nights and never-ending crying and diaper duty and a host of other things. After all, I can't tell you how many times people told Sarah and me, oh, your lives are going to completely change. Well, of course we knew, but we didn't know how. Like, how can a three-year-old poop that much? <laughs> but it seems that Peter and the other disciples had some expectations of Jesus, too. Jesus refuses to be bound by them. Rather, Jesus has another image, another expectation of how God's kingdom will appear. Today's gospel begins on the same day as the exorcism we heard about in the synagogue last week. From there, Jesus goes to Peter's mother-in-law, and this was probably Peter's own home. The notion of a dual-generation home with parents and children under one roof is a relatively recent thing. In much of the world, multiple generations lived and still do live in under one roof. Peter and his wife, his children, his brother Andrew, his mother-in-law, and other in-laws probably all lived together in one house. And women were incredibly important to the household. Without women, the whole thing would have just totally fallen apart. Let me list some of the things women did to keep the household afloat in first century Palestine. They went early to the town to draw water. They made clothing. They haggled at the market. They ground grain. There was no such thing as buying flour back then. They had to grind their own flour. They had to bake bread. They cooked. They tended animals. They cared for children. They stewarded household resources. They were the treasurers often of the family. They prepared religious offerings. They were also the doctors of the family, too, and also served as midwives. They, uh, they did a lot of things. It's not like the men didn't do anything. They were out in the boat fishing, but the fishing was anything but recreational. Let me just say that. They would be out all night with those nets. But women did pretty much everything else. So I know that we can twitch a bit when we hear that upon being healed of her fever, Peter's mother-in-law, whose name we never learn, by the way, this is the first woman mentioned in Mark's Gospel, she immediately got up and began to serve Jesus and the disciples. So when we read this in our Thursday Bible study, one person noticed that right away. She served them? Really? Well, but her service here is not subservience. Her service is not subservience. No, Jesus does not tell her, okay, you're healed now, go make me a sandwich. No, a very special Greek word is used here to describe her service. 
a word at the root of our English word deacon, as in the same word used to describe the call of seven men in the book of Acts, including the illustrious Stephen and Philip. She is among that company. This woman's service is far from subservience. It is ministry and an example of true discipleship. Her service after Jesus heals her and lifts her up, her service is unfevered. It comes from a place of health. However, I love the disciples because they get it so wrong so much of the time. And I often think if they get it so wrong so much of the time, there's hope for me. Isn't there? There's hope for us. They fail to follow her example. In contrast to her calm, unfevered service, they feverishly hunt Jesus down after he disappears for a few hours. Jesus, after a very long night, goes away to pray, to be with his Father, to recharge, to renew. They, but they have, all, they have all sorts of expectations. It's only been a day and they're already putting all kinds of expectations on what Jesus' ministry will mean. You can imagine them thinking, wow, that was amazing the night before. Everyone came to Jesus and to us. You know, he wants to travel, but wouldn't it just be easier to stay here? Uh, set up shop. I mean, my house, you know, Peter's house could serve in, as the headquarters. Why not? You know, people could come to us. He could still preach and talk about the kingdom, but the healings, that really gets people's attention. That really gets the, uh, attracts folks. Why not let them come to us? That's a good church growth strategy after all, isn't it? Peter doesn't say these things, of course. Rather, when the disciples find Jesus, they, they deflect, everybody is looking for you. Well, they're the ones looking for him, but everybody is looking for you. These hours of anxiety, seeing greatness slip away from them, they tell Jesus about everyone else's expectations. Sorry, I didn't mean to point at you, Mike, but uh, you can't let them down, Jesus. You've got this great gift from God. Wouldn't it be just as well to use it here? But Jesus won't be tied to anyone's expectations of him. Jesus is not a church growth strategist. The only expectations Jesus is concerned about are those of his father. He knows what his mission is. Nothing is going to deflect him from continuing that path. Jesus will continue preaching the word in other towns. The news of the kingdom of God is urgent, but it is never anxious. The news of the kingdom of God is urgent, but it is never anxious. It is never fevered. Throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus models unfevered service. Of course, we know how we can get in the church sometimes or in our own lives. Just a couple church examples. Sometimes the church can be a hotbed of feverish service. There's the fever of trying to prepare a whole VBS in a short amount of time. 
or preparing for Lent and Easter, or in trying to reach potential new members, or in paying off a mortgage. And it isn't just congregations. Other expressions of the church also have these moments of fever. And I've I've mentioned in a sermon about the moment of fever I was greeted with pretty much immediately upon going to seminary. Uh, There are other feverish times in our lives. Sickness, loss of a job, loss of a loved one, fear about making rent or the mortgage, the general dis-ease that undergirds our world these days. But those fevers, those dis-eases do not have the last word. Rather, as Jesus lifted up the woman from her fever, Jesus lifts us up. Not so that we would be subservient, but so that we would be his ministers. Raised up, healed, and commissioned. Luther's explanation to the second article of the Creed mentions, touches on this. He elaborates a bit. Why has Jesus saved me from sin and death? He has done all this in order that I may belong to him, live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in eternal righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he is risen from the dead and lives and rules eternally. This is most certainly true. We are Jesus' ministers given a dignity and a purpose we couldn't have on our own. We're called to serve from a place of shalom, a place of health, a place of wholeness, wherever we are at. And if you don't feel that shalom right now, if your life isn't peaceful or if you're anxious or fearful or suffering, Jesus still comes to you. He comes to you in his word, which, as we heard last week, will drive out demons. He comes to you in in the sacrament. He touches you as he touched the woman to raise her up from her illness. He comes to you to bring you that shalom, won for us in his suffering and death, and confirmed for us in his resurrection. He comes to you to make you and me ministers after his way of ministry, unfevered and patient. Jesus triumphs over every power. Be lifted up today to serve in his name. Amen.